So, welcome to another episode of Top Class with me, Duncan Crawford, where we're discussing support for education in Ukraine. Russia's war of aggression has had a devastating impact on the education of Ukrainian children. Inside the country, many schools and universities are in ruin. More than 3,000 have been damaged after being hit by Russian missiles and mortars, according to Ukraine's education ministry. More than 260 educational facilities have been destroyed entirely. Because of the war, school lessons often have to be conducted remotely online. If they're held in person, it's not uncommon for teachers and students to have to take shelter in basements due to air raid alerts. And of course, millions of people have fled the country. The vast majority are women and children. Those children are in need of an education, but there are many barriers to enrolling and learning in host countries. So what can be done to support education in Ukraine at this critical time? And what can be done to help support Ukrainian refugees learning in host countries? Well, I'm joined by Frederick Smets, an education officer from the UN Refugee Agency's Regional Bureau for Europe. Thanks for joining me, Frederick. Very welcome, Duncan. Uh, good, to, good to speak to you. You've been right at the heart of efforts to deal with this crisis, as you've been coordinating the UN Refugee Agency's education response on the ground. Could you start by outlining the current situation facing school children and students in Ukraine? Well, as you outlined, uh, Duncan, this war has really been devastating for the whole education system inside Ukraine. Um, as you mentioned, over 3,000 education institutions have either been damaged um, and, and over 260 of them have been destroyed. And so that means that represents about a quarter of the education uh, infrastructure inside that country. So that means that a quarter of your schools, your universities, your kindergartens cannot be used at the moment. And so that is a, a really devastating situation for kids that need to go to school. So, you know, that's the first thing is the infrastructure. The second thing is that there are millions uh, of kids inside Ukraine that are internally displaced. So they lived in areas that were affected by violence, that were affected by widespread destruction, and they moved to other parts of the country inside Ukraine. And so that means you saw a very, very vast movement of children of school age from one side of the country to the other side of the country. And they, of course, need to go to school. Now, what happens with these children is they can usually just go to another school in another city, but uh, we then see that there are strains on the capacities there. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, uh, class sizes double, children don't find places in schools. There are lots of cases of internally displaced children that do not find places in schools in other parts of the country. And so that means that uh, basically they don't have uh, a chance to have face-to-face -face education. So the Ukrainian government is doing an enormous effort to try to get these children to go back to school. But often this means that they need to follow online education or they can only have intermittent access to education. And of course, um, you can see that this is a devastating effect on the education of those millions of children that are internally displaced within um, Ukraine, uh, because the education that they will get is usually um, poor quality. They don't have access to classes as much as they used to. And um, because of the whole experience of being displaced, they don't come to learning that much. Uh, they often suffer from certain trauma uh, and it takes uh, quite a while for them to, to, to get back to learning. So you can see that this crisis is having a devastating effect um, on education inside Ukraine. Is there anything practically that you think should be happening at the moment that isn't 
to try to get those school children into education more frequently and to have higher quality education. There's a lot of things that could be done, but everything hinges on the security situation. You cannot send kids to school if they are in danger of being bombed, of course, and that needs to be the first prerequisite. As long as we don't have security, we don't have quality education. It is as simple as that, unfortunately. And unfortunately, as we all know, and as we've all seen in the news, there is almost no safe space in the entire country. And so what you see now is that the Ukrainian government has taken measures like obliging schools to foresee bomb shelters. Um, there is a security system, uh, a warning system uh, in place that could warn schools when attacks are imminent and things like that. Some areas of Ukraine have largely switched to online education so kids don't actually physically need to go to school um, so that they are out of harm's way. And my short answer to your question is there is no easy solution for this. It is almost impossible to organize education in a good way if the security situation remains as dire as it is at the moment. So the only solution, uh, the only thing that can be done actually to make sure that all these kids can return to school as normal is that there would be peace. Uh, there should be an end to the conflict, unfortunately. You mentioned the mental health issues earlier on. Uh, many people in Ukraine, including children, will now have seen family or friends killed and wounded. They'll have lost loved ones, specifically for children, often their fathers. And the psychological trauma for children and for everyone in Ukraine must be immense. So how should teachers and policymakers, for that matter, even begin to deal with that situation? So... The first thing I think is that teachers and also non-mental health professionals that are working with children in schools, so the whole school environment, should receive adequate training to spot mental health problems um, as soon as they can. So there's a lot of training programs out there that are focusing on that, but it is very important for teachers to recognize those behaviors that could point towards stress heightened stress, uh, but also PTSD, so that they can do um, a proper referral to a mental health professional. Teachers are not psychologists. And uh, that's what we need to help teachers with. We need to uh, help teachers in spotting these early warning signs of potential stress and PTSD with these children. So that's the first step, I think. The second step, uh, which is very important, is just to build that um, professional care and mental health care system within those schools. So we're talking about psychologists that are specialized in working with children, in working with an, in an educational environment, because that kind of counseling, if needed, is very important because children do not come to learning if they are suffering from stress and PTSD. And it is almost no use to send them to a school or to have them in, into a classroom if they are really suffering from uh, severe mental health problems and this will block them from learning. So I would say the first important thing is to make sure that the whole school environment is aware of these potential mental health problems. The second thing is to build that support system. Um, and that support system has to be built in a safe environment, if, if possible. How hard is it to build that support system, given the scale of the crisis and the numbers of children involved? All of that surely takes a lot of time and money. So where will these psychologists come from? Well, you're, you're touching upon the, the, the most difficult aspect of, of the mental health crisis in education here, which is, um, first of all, finding enough specialists. Uh, there are only that many psychologists with 
a specialism in working in education that graduate from universities each year. So there is a very limited supply of mental health professionals that can actually work in this field. That is the first big problem. The second big problem as well is that you need people that speak Ukrainian or that speak the language of those children because consulting children in such a, in such a delicate uh, situation really requires them to build uh, trust with mental health professionals. This usually happens in their own language, of course. And if you can't find those psychologists that speak Ukrainian, for example, you would need uh, almost an army of cultural mediators or translators that could actually work in such a setting as well. So they too need training. So the pool of people that you can draw from is already very limited. And then on top of that, the numbers of children that we see that potentially need such mental health support is so enormous that um, you know there's no easy solution here. This will take many, many years. So the picture you paint there is obviously fairly grim that given the scale of the crisis, it's going to be very hard to find effective solutions easily. And it's hard to imagine for millions of children. They've been ripped from their homes. They've had to leave everything behind. And they know that their homes, the people they care for, the world they knew may no longer exist. For the teachers as well, many of them are likely to be traumatised. Do you speak to teachers in Ukraine who are suffering from depression or an anxiety, for example? I have, indeed. I've spoken to quite a few teachers that were working inside Ukraine first, and then some of them have fled to other countries as well. And many of those, unfortunately, are severely stressed or traumatized even. And this really impedes them from returning to work. They are often living in a situation where they are internally displaced, where they have had to leave their schools where they were teaching. And so they're no longer teaching uh, in displacement. Those that have fled to other countries find themselves in countries with different languages of instruction. They find themselves in countries where their certification as a teacher is not valid because they're certified in Ukraine. And of course, they cannot teach as a certified teacher in another country if they don't certify first in that other country. So what you see is basically a perfect storm of all the loss and all the mourning that they experience as teachers when they are displaced or when they are living as refugees abroad. And on top of that, they have to cope with stress, mental health problems, potential PTSD, which basically impedes them from working as well. Because, you know, teaching is a very intense profession. It requires a lot of empathy. It requires a lot of mental stability. And if you don't have that, and if you suffer from stress, mental health problems, but also, for example, concerns about your day-to-day -day situation, then it is almost impossible for you to, 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 to work in that profession. So many have actually given up the profession in displacement. And they hope to return, of course, many of them. But many of them are simply not working at the moment because they can't. So again, you're painting a very grim picture here where teachers aren't even capable of teaching at the moment. So many staff have been lost. Is there anything that international organisations are doing to try to support the Ukrainian government at the moment to overcome that issue? There's a lot of uh, work that's being done, uh, but teaching is a very human profession in the sense that you need a lot of staff and you need a lot of qualified staff. So, so for me, I always say that education hinges on having enough people, enough educators. And of course, everything sort of collapses when those teachers and those educators and those school staff are not there anymore or they can't work for some reason or another. Now, 
fortunately, you know, for those that are fleeing the country, notably, they usually end up in European countries where we have fully functioning education systems. And uh, most of those education systems in Poland, in Germany, in other countries in Europe, they have some experience at least, if not a lot of experience, with including children into their education systems. So that is one way of coping with this uh, enormous education crisis, which is to bring these children into education in another country, where they can then start learning again, where they can you know, learn with professional and certified teachers in another country, where they can also maintain potentially the link with the education system in Ukraine by following language lessons, cultural lessons, and things like that. So all that can be facilitated when you bring them into, first of all, a safe country, second of all, into a fully functioning education system. So that is one solution. Unfortunately for inside Ukraine, maybe it's again a bit of a grim assessment, but the, the security situation really hampers education. And there is no easy solutions there. So safety is always the primordial thing there. You can move schools or you can bring children from other parts of Ukraine into schools. But that's about as good as it gets. International organizations are uh, supporting Ukrainian schools and education inside Ukraine with lots of resources, with lots of uh, money, uh, where possible schools are being rebuilt or being refurbished at least so that they can be reused again, where possible uh, teachers and, and, and pupils are being brought into safe areas where they can continue their education and things like that. But this comes back to my earlier argument to say that as long as you don't have that security, everything else is, is, is almost impossible to implement. You mentioned some of the international efforts to support Ukraine there. The OECD is continuing to work with Ukraine, supporting Ukraine's agenda for reform and recovery. The OECD and Ukraine's government launched a four-year country programme to support the well-being of people to help the country develop. And supporting education is a big part of that initiative, also supporting refugees who have left Ukraine. And you talked about the situation there, about the importance of getting Ukrainian children into host country education systems. I know that there are many barriers to getting Ukrainian kids to enrol in host country education systems, some of the main factors being teacher shortages and also language issues. Um, what are the main issues that you've seen? So if you talk about refugees, those that are outside of Ukraine, they move to a different country, in most cases a different language of instruction. And I would say that the language of instruction is the most obvious and biggest barrier in, in getting these children into education. Uh, there are a couple of languages out there in host countries that are quite close to Ukrainian, uh, like, for example, Slovak and, and Polish, but it is not the same language of instruction, and we should keep that in mind. Children cannot learn in um, a different language of instruction, so there's always a trajectory for these children where they need to learn the language of instruction before they can actually go to the regular school. So that is a first very important barrier. A second important barrier is also parents often are unaware of the educational options that they actually have in refugee hosting countries. So most of the countries in the EU, uh, most of the countries in the Europe region have systems of inclusion of refugee and migrant children into their national education systems. This usually involves the organization of language classes or preparatory classes before they go into the regulatory class. But the main issue here is that, first of all, there are so many refugees Second of all, most of those came in on temporary protection and didn't typically receive 
as much information as they would receive if they would have gone through the asylum procedure, which is what they haven't done, most of them. And so that means that they usually don't have a social worker that they can interact with, a social worker or somebody else um, in a local administration where they're living, that would explain to them very simply, this is how you enroll your child and this is the benefits that your child would get from having an education in, in the local education system. And so there's a lot of lack of information. And then on top of that, we live in a digital age and since COVID, of course, uh, online education has become a very important tool for teachers to continue teaching. And so uh, the Ukrainian government, fortunately, has developed uh, a lot of tools to continue on learning online, specifically for secondary education. And there's a lot of children and a lot of parents from Ukraine that are still in a wait-and-see mode. They still expect that they, that they will be able to come back in the short term. And a lot of them have actually uh, preferred their children to continue following the Ukrainian curriculum online, even though lessons are intermittent and maybe not of the same quality as if they were to get face-to-face education. And so having that option available is also another has created another uh, sort of barrier for parents to enroll their children into the local um, education systems of host countries. There's other problems as well. Uh, there are a couple of uh, administrative barriers in some cases. Uh, enrolling your child involves always a bit of paperwork. In some countries, this is easier than in other countries. Uh, in some countries, you might need a fully-fledged residency permit that is uh, valid for a couple of years. In other countries, you might need uh, some certificates, birth certificates or whatever, and maybe you don't have access to those documents anymore. So there are several barriers. Given all the barriers you've mentioned there, do we have an idea of how many refugee Ukrainian children have managed to enrol with national host country education systems, or is it just unknown? The simple answer is it is unknown, so we don't have precise figures, but we have good estimates. Where there is data available on enrollment of children, we can see that the enrollment rates are still rather low. So that means, in the best case, around 40 or 50% on average of these children are enrolled. So that is a rather low figure. So that means that, as a ballpark figure, you could say that about half of those Ukrainian children currently, based on the data that we have, are out of school. Out of school means they either do not go to school at all, uh, or they may follow some online education, according to Ukrainian curriculum, or they may follow what we call non-formal education. So that means they might follow, follow a language course or they might follow um, other courses that are not part of the curriculum of the Ukrainian school system or of the host country school system. And I imagine the potential long-term impact of that will be very difficult to overcome unless those children get into school relatively quickly. To those who don't know, what are the potential long-term implications? So having that many children, hundreds of thousands of children out of school for a prolonged time, we're talking about the second school year now, the third school year of school disruptions in the Ukraine emergency crisis is right around the corner because it will start in September. Being out of school for such a long time has long-term and very uh, profound consequences for these children. A first obvious one is learning losses. A lot of these children, and we can see this already in things like, for example, the OECD PISA scores, these children will do less good on subjects like mathematics, subjects like languages, uh, in some cases also humanities. So you can see that the academic performance of these children will go down dramatically. And this has long-term knock-on effects on their future career prospects and on their livelihoods at the end of the day. Because obviously, 
the lower your academic performance or if your academic performance drops to such a level that you cannot attain something like, for example, a secondary school diploma, that also then prevents you from going to higher education. That also prevents you from getting a degree in higher education. That also prevents you then to access those jobs and those careers and those livelihoods that you may want to pursue as a young person. And so even one or two or three years of, of such disruptions um, can have a lifetime of negative effects on these refugees. We've seen that very clearly during COVID as well. COVID was not a displacement crisis, but it was also characterized by long-term school closures in many countries, severe disruptions, switches to online education. And we can see now already in various uh, sources, we can see that there is a negative effect on academic attainment of, those, of that generation of children that went through the COVID crisis, uh, including Ukrainian children for that matter. So the long-term effects of having hundreds of thousands of refugee kids in this situation will be devastating for that generation. I mean, it's a horrendous picture you're painting again. And given the scale of that, I imagine there are a variety of responses from different EU member countries, for example, where obviously the majority of Ukrainian refugees have fled to Europe. Are there any particular examples of policies that you would like to highlight which are doing a good job of trying to enrol Ukrainian children into education systems so they're not missing out? So um, Europe and the European Union specifically has a long tradition of welcoming migrant and, and refugee children. And that is something uh, that you can see in play now already in many of those European host countries. I think one of the most important tools that we need to deploy more even uh, now um, is a system of welcome classes or preparatory classes. So there is European legislation that says specifically for asylum seeking and refugee children, that says that kids need to be enrolled in the national school system within three months after they register in the country. The second thing is also there is an obligation of member states in the EU uh, to organize a preparatory program for these children with a view to including them into the national school system. And so such a preparatory program usually involves language courses. In many cases, it also involves putting them into a separate class, a welcome class for a year or maybe two school years, so that they can learn the language of instruction and then go to the regular class in a host country. And so there are different models of those, each with different um, degrees of, of benefits and, and, and disadvantages. But I think that is one of the primary tools with which we should work, which is to organize these welcome classes, to integrate these children, to, to include them into the national school system through a system of preparatory courses, preparatory classes. The second measure that is, I think, really, really important is, is what I would call system strengthening of the school systems in Europe to include refugee and migrant children. Um, by system strengthening, I mean hiring enough teachers that could give these language classes, that could organize these preparatory classes, strengthening the school infrastructure, allowing these kids a place, first of all, to sit, giving them a desk, uh, giving them a computer, giving them a good Wi-Fi uh, connection so that they can study on a par with the other students. And the last important thing, I think, uh, is to provide enough training and to build the knowledge of schools, educators, teachers, Everybody is involved in uh, the education of these children. And um, I would note that, that um, we've gone a long way already in Europe in, in, in teacher training institutes, in initial teacher training, but also in continuous professional development 
to provide such courses to teachers, for example. But given the scale of the crisis that we're talking about here, I think the need for training will become ever larger. I think more and more and more teachers and educators will need this kind of training because we see that almost every school in Europe will eventually have refugee children in them or migrant children in them. And it's very important that uh, uh, teachers and educators get a specific training for them. Given the numbers involved and the fact that teacher shortages are a major issue in many European countries anyway, are there any efforts to take advantage of the pool of Ukrainian teachers who will have fled the country, who are in host countries, and using them as language assistants or teachers who can work with those Ukrainian students and the host country teachers to ensure that there is that transition into education systems? So a lot of countries have taken measures uh, to allow certified Ukrainian teachers to work either as teachers or as teacher assistants or as cultural mediators in schools. And that is a very good initiative, of course. Um, We just talked about the fact that most European schools are suffering from teacher shortages as it is. There is a huge need also to train teachers and educators in schools um, on including refugee children. And given those shortages, of course, it is a very logical thing to do to to, um, let the teachers that were working in Ukraine that have fled the country to let those work in refugee hosting countries. This isn't as easy as it might seem at first sight. Uh, First of all, because of the language barrier, of course. Um, A lot of those teachers do speak other languages, but they don't necessarily speak the language of instruction. We see that in most European countries, uh, one of the criteria uh, for you to become a teacher is that you are fluent in the language of instruction. So a lot of those teachers that came from Ukraine, and there are many, will have to learn the language of instruction first before they can start teaching and before they can even qualify as a teacher in a host country. Secondly, the curriculum is also different. So the Ukrainian curriculum does differ from EU countries. And then on top of that, of course, the curriculum in all those different EU countries is different as well. So depending on which country you go to as a Ukrainian teacher, you will find yourself in a completely new curriculum environment. And so in addition to language, those Ukrainian teachers will also need to learn how to function within that new education system and they will have to learn the curriculum and learn how to deliver the curriculum. A lot of focus has been on getting Ukrainian students into education again in the host countries. But I wonder how much work is being done to ensure that they still stay in touch with the Ukrainian education side in terms of culture and history, if they're being enrolled in other countries' national systems? Is that an issue which needs more attention? So parents of Ukrainian children, refugee parents that are in other countries now, uh, they face what I would say terrible parent dilemmas because they've been uprooted, they had to leave Ukraine, they are finding themselves in another country with another language. The education of the children was disrupted. And what do we do now? Do I send my child to a local school? Usually there's compulsory education, so you basically have to send your child to a local school. But what are the prospects then? So the dilemmas parents are facing are, am I going to wait and see what happens in Ukraine? Will I be able to return? Will my child be able to return to the Ukrainian system and just continue learning as before? 
or at least continue learning in the same education system that they were used to? Or do I take that drastic step to basically bring my child into the education of the host system for however long that situation may last? So that is a very, very difficult dilemma that a lot of Ukrainian parents are, are struggling with. Our argument has always been that uh, for any refugee situation, it is best to bring refugee children into the national school system of the host country as soon as possible after displacement. And that has a number of very good reasons. First of all, bringing a child into a national education system of a host country is the easiest way to stop that disruption in learning and to really bring that child back into a school situation where it can learn face-to-face with a certified teacher, where it can interact with other children, and where it can also interact with that whole school environment, where parents can also interact with other environments. Don't forget that the school is a whole social network. And so it is very important, and there are many examples from other refugee situations, where that has proven to be the most effective way to bring those children into high-quality education right from the start. There will be a language barriers, there will be barriers in catching up on some forms of uh, some subjects and on catching up on education. It's not an easy thing to do, but it is the best and easiest thing to stop that disruption of learning. What's unique about the Ukraine crisis, of course, is that we have a fully functioning Ministry of Education and a fully functioning education system that we can work with to also provide services to the diaspora, to the refugees, also to the IDPs uh, inside Ukraine. And that's what makes this crisis a bit different from other crises. So there are a lot of children that still keep the link with the Ukrainian system by learning online. I think what's very important is that we could continue maintaining that link with Ukrainian education system, but we should be very wary of the workload that this brings to these refugee children, because if they are For example, in a German school or in a Polish school, they're following a full curriculum there. And then on Wednesdays afternoons or on Saturday mornings, they follow Ukrainian curriculum online. Does this not create too much of a workload? Now we can see that the Ukrainian government uh, and also other European governments are already working on solutions to that. And so that means that if you look at uh, the Ukrainian government has just issued a set of guidelines on how to organize education abroad and how grades obtained in other countries can be validated into the Ukrainian system. So what does this mean? If a child studies in Poland and already has mathematics in the national school, then maybe this child does not need to study mathematics online according to the Ukrainian curriculum. So maybe that could be cut out of that package of online education that they are doing. If there are subjects that they can't follow in Poland, for example, like, for example, Ukrainian language, yes, then this could be continued and this could be continued online or this could be continued also with, for example, Ukrainian teachers. So in our mind, the best solution here would be to, first of all, bring these kids into the national education system of the host country, because that is a direct connection back to learning. A second very important argument to bring them in, in uh, into the national education system is also if if this emergency lasts a long time, it is very likely that these children will stay in the host country for a very long time. And it is also very important that they can then continue their lives there. And uh, it is then very important that they continue their education there so that, for example, if they do have to stay in Poland for quite a longer time than they had expected, that they can learn the uh, the language in Poland, that they can uh, uh, obtain their degrees in Poland as well, and that they can also build their lives in Poland. 
On the other hand, if we then retain, of course, for example, uh, language education, cultural education, according to the Ukrainian system, if all goes well and the war ends and in a couple of years these children can go back to Ukraine, then they don't lose any years studied abroad. Because what will happen then is what they've studied, the mathematics they've studied in Poland or in Germany can be validated into the Ukrainian system. They will get their grades there. So we have to sort of develop this two-way system of potential movements of these refugee children to make sure that they are prepared for whatever comes next, however long this war lasts and however uh, short it may last as well. Frederick, I'm conscious that we don't have much more time. So I'm going to end by asking, given the absolute horrendous situation that Ukrainian children and adults are facing, both in the country and refugees, and given the scale of everything you've described, the number of problems facing these children in particular, are you a a pessimist or an optimist for the future for these children? Well, I'm always an optimist. And I am optimistic because I see a lot of resilience in these refugees. Without any exception, all the parents, Ukrainian parents that I've spoken to in refugee countries in recent months, they all want their kids to go back to school as soon as possible. They all think about the future of their children and they are very tenacious in making sure that their children get an education. So I see a lot of mothers that are you know, struggling with housing and whatnot and with paperwork in, in, in God knows which country. And their priority is still, no, my child has to go to, to, to the school around the corner and I will make sure that this child will get in. And they usually succeed in it. So there's a, there's a lot of tenaciousness there and there's a lot of resilience in, in that uh, population. Um, the second thing as well is that I am very optimistic that there is a great deal of compatibility between European education systems and between the Ukrainian education system. Don't forget that uh, the Ukrainian education system always had very good scores. So that means that uh, children had high degrees of academic attainment. And I do believe that we should try and get the positives out of this crisis and, 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 and try and see if we can find more convergence between the Ukrainian education system and all those European host country education systems. So my answer to your question is yes, I'm an an unabated positivist, I'm an unabated uh, optimist when it comes to this because I already see that there's many seeds of improvement in the education system and I hope, obviously, uh, when when this whole dreadful conflict is over, I hope that we can continue uh, growing those seeds and, and, and making the education systems in Europe more inclusive. Well, Frederick, thank you so much for your time and all your insights as well into the situation. That is Frederick Smets, an education officer from UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. If you'd like to know more about their work, then you can go to their website, unhcr.org. You can also read more about the OECD's work in Ukraine to support its reform and recovery. There's lots of info on the OECD website, including a report called Learning During Crisis, which outlines how other countries have reformed their education systems when faced with crises or other unique situations. That's it for now. Thanks again to Frederick. Thanks for joining us. And I hope you can join us again soon for another episode of Top Class. See you.